Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. Uh, we got a depressing one today because it's about war. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. War. Good God, y'all. My guest is Julia Yaffe founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck Media. Julia is a veteran journalist who's written for the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker. Julia was born in Russia, and in addition to covering Washington, spends a lot of her time covering the war in Ukraine, Putin's war. He is responsible for the horror that we see unfolding every day. A giant miscalculation, of course, on Putin's part. He thought he'd invade and be in Kiev in uh, a matter of, of days. Uh, we've done a, a few of these podcasts on Ukraine. Frank Four of the Atlantic Monthly uh, spoke with us right at the start of the war on, on Biden's masterful leadership in putting this enormous coalition that's uh, behind Ukraine in, in the place. And just when uh, we begin to see some potential rifts. We we see these allies agree to continue to step up in the last couple of weeks in regard to tanks. Julia, not alone in, in wondering where we might be in this war if that kind of commitment of uh, more advanced weapons had, had happened sooner. Alexander Vindman, who was Director of European Affairs for the National Security Council under the Trump administration. Of course, he, he's the guy who blew the whistle on the uh, Trump shakedown call with Zelensky. He was on with me not such a long time ago and told me that he was optimistic about Ukraine's progress in the war th this winter. And Julia takes a more, more pessimistic view. So I called Colonel Vindman after I spoke with Julia Yaffe to get his take. And Vindman told me that he continues to be optimistic uh, in terms of uh, Ukraine gaining territory in the South, and as I understood him, uh, making real progress toward cutting off Russia's land corridor to Crimea. Julia, as you'll hear, is not so optimistic, as I said. She talks very chillingly about the carnage in what she describes as almost World War I trench warfare, and the uh, use of prisoners by the mercenary Wagner group, led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the unbelievable carnage and, and brutality. Some very, very, very dark stuff. Uh, there are Republicans, MAGA Republicans, uh, some of the worst people in, in Congress. Uh, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene comes to mind for some reason. Uh, right before the midterm, she told a rally that under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine. That is such a bad idea for so, so many reasons. As Julie and I discussed, this is this is a bargain for the United States. We've sent about five, maybe maybe six percent of our defense budget on this war, and we have significantly degraded the Russian army, our our, our sworn enemy, with the massive support of of all these allies. Russia is the second biggest military in the world. The Ukrainians have killed or wounded over 100,000 Russian troops, and that was as of a few months ago. And not one American soldier has has been killed or wounded or gotten trench foot in, in Ukraine. We are eroding Russia's defense capabilities every day at no risk to American lives by deploying our weapons, our technology, our logistics and intelligence seamlessly uh, with, with Ukrainians. I'm not an arms dealer, but Ukraine has been just a hell of a showcase for American ingenuity. Meanwhile, the Russians have been showing the world just how inept they uh, are on pretty much every score. The New York Times reported that Ukrainian troops have, have used cell phone calls to their families and stuff, basically because there's very little communications on the front lines, and uh, that Ukrainian forces have used these calls to locate them and wipe them out in large numbers. Now, I, I don't know if you remember Ted Cruz sending a uh, viral tweet, which featured a, a very muscular Russian soldier with a shaved head who was doing push-ups and jumping out of a plane and had, like, staring down the scope of his rifle and he juxtaposed it next to a u.s army video of a woman soldier who had been raised by two mothers and and ted wrote that it made americans in the pansies and he said perhaps a woke emasculated military is not the best idea well ted a lot of your super emasculated russian buddies have have been taken out by a Ukrainian army supported by American intelligence and logistics teams comprised of men, women, and uh, non-binary military personnel and daughters and sons of different couples. Still, as the war enters its second year, there is real uncertainty ahead. Okay, it is a depressing one today for a change. Julia Yaffe joins us in a moment. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Your founding uh, partner and the Washington correspondent for Puck. Sure am. And uh, explain Puck. So we're we're the hottest new media company and everybody should That's subscribe what I was to say. us. Yeah, of course. And we write about kind of what really happens in the halls of American power, you know, from Wall Street to Silicon Valley to Hollywood to Washington. Um, and yours truly writes the Tuesday Dis- Dispatch, which is usually about matters of national security, foreign policy. And that's what you mainly cover is, and, and you're on about six months ago uh, mm-hmm. about the war uh, in, in uh, Ukraine. About a month ago, I had Alexander Vindman. Uh, oh, wow. And yeah, and he, Alex was very optimistic <laughs> about a month ago. Uh, about uh, about Ukraine's uh, position in this. And and he was kind of saying, well, uh, Ukraine's going to take it to them during the winter, that they are equipped to do that. They're uh, cycling soldiers in and out. They're rested. <laughs> and uh, they have a proper equipment and the Russians don't. And uh, that they're going to continue to build on the momentum they they had up to a couple months ago and uh, that everything was looking good and that within, oh, I don't know, uh, a, a certain amount of time that uh, Russia would be coming to the table. That was sort of where he sounded like uh, what he was saying at the time. And right now it feels very different. I mean, that that I think even a month ago would have been, uh, I mean, I wasn't there for the conversation, but even a month ago, that would have been a very optimistic assessment. I was mm-hmm. not hearing that from anybody I was talking to. Okay. Uh, what I was hearing a month ago is basically what we're seeing now, which is this kind of World War One style trench warfare with a little bit of territory changing hands here and there, but not much changing. And that much of the fighting would happen in the spring uh, yes. and that either the Ukrainians or the Russians or both would make a big push in the spring uh, fighting season, but that the winter would ge- generally just be a slog and a really kind of entrenchment of this war of attrition. And that's what we've been hearing Correct. about uh, in uh, Donetsk, and uh, is, that's the region. Mm-hmm. Is is Donetsk the Donbas region, or they're the same one and the same? So it's the Don River Basin. So it's the Donbas, like basin. That's what it means. It's it's a like region is in geographic region, and then Donetsk is like um like a Ukrainian state. So what is happening right now is you're saying basically World War One style trench warfare, but there's been in the last few days, a couple of advancements by the Russians. And so this is the, the Wagner group, right? Yeah, um, which is one of the 
kind of scarier developments of the, or, or let's just say, I wouldn't say scary, one of the more sinister developments of this war, which is the empowerment of the Wagner Group and of its owner, Yevgeny Prigozhin. And he is a uh, an ally Psychopath. Of- Sorry. Uh, uh, okay, psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Allied psychopath to Putin. Yeah. Yeah. And th- these are mercenaries, right? Uh, Some of them. Y- yes, and then- it, like technically. So here's the deal with uh, Prigozhin. Prigozhin is himself a former convict. He spent the entire 1980s in jail. He went to jail in part for stealing some earrings and boots off of a lady. And he did that by asking her for a smoke. And as she reached into her purse, he started strangling her. And when she lost consciousness, he stole her earrings and her boots. And then when he got out, he started selling hot dogs. Then he went into the restaurant business. This is the 1990s when capitalism was coming into Russia. And somewhere along the way, probably in the late 90s, he met Vladimir Putin, who was, or maybe early 90s. And then he became known as Putin's chef. Like he owned a bunch of restaurants that Putin liked. He brought George W. Bush to one of his restaurants. He brought Jacques Chirac to one of his restaurants. And then Degorzhin starts getting contracts, these massive catering contracts to cater to basically school cafeterias and the military and the police. But most of that money was going out the back door to fund this mercenary company that would show up in Syria or in Eastern Ukraine in 2014 or in various African countries to do basically work that the Russian government wanted to do but didn't want to have its fingerprints on. And the Russian government thought that this is what Blackwater did, that Blackwater was an invention or a creation of the U.S. government and was controlled by the U.S. government. And that that's what Wagner was going to be. And they purposely kind of dissembled. And anytime Wagner was mentioned in the Russian press, the reporters and the editors would be sued and they would lose, obviously, because these are Russian courts. But with the start of the war, Prigozhin threw all those masks off and said, yep, I own Wagner and we're fighting in Ukraine. But what he's been doing is, I mean, he's basically fighting for the Russian state. They're not really mercenaries. I mean, they're getting paid, but mostly now they're prisoners. These are prisoners in Russian prisons who are given their, quote, freedom if they, if they come survive. To- yeah. Because the casualty rate in Wagner, we've seen reported, is somewhere like 80%. So he basically, he spent the summer uh, and early fall going to prisons, which obviously you need permission at the highest level for. Uh, He would go in and say, listen, you sign a contract with me for six months. And if you survive, you go home, you get your record expunged and uh, or not expunged, you get whatever you get forgiven and you go back out into society. Wow. And yeah, so now now there's uh, news of a a murderer, a convicted murderer who killed several people who did his six months in Wagner and is now hanging out in Turkey. Okay. Just living it up. But most of them don't make it. Like 80% are killed. And he has sent, by some accounts, as many as 50,000 Russian convicts to fight in Ukraine. And what's also nuts is that 
when they go into battle, they barely have any equipment, but they do have kind of Stalin World War II style. There are officers behind them who, if they start retreating, if these convicts start retreating, Wagner officers are supposed to shoot them. And if they're caught deserting, Uh they are brought back. Their heads are taped to cement blocks, and then uh, they get a sledgehammer to the head. Like ISIS style. Okay. Um, If you're listening. (laughs) I told you, he's a psychopath. Yeah. But now he has an army. Now he has an army. And and so Putin has called up 300,000 troops. Yeah. After September. Okay. And that's just, that's a one-time deal. We don't know. The Kremlin has been dissembling quite aggressively ever since. So they, they announced a partial mobilization. Putin himself announced a, quote, partial mobilization in September. It freaked everybody out. There were protests. Something like 700,000 men of military age fled in two weeks, which is insane. Like almost a million people fleeing a country in two weeks. That's bonkers. And how do they get out? Do they get out? Did they have to <laughs> like find Some of them way? got out on scooters. Some of them got out on foot. Some of them got out on an airplane ticket. Some of them got out driving, standing in traffic jams that lasted, you know, several days. But because of that, and because they knew, the Kremlin knew that this likely wouldn't be enough, they never announced an official end to the mobilization. And every time they were pressed on it, they said, we don't need to end it. It's kind of, it's implied that it's over. We don't need to announce an official end. And meanwhile, reports were coming in from various regions that people were still being called up. A thousand here, a few hundred there. And every time the Kremlin was asked about whether they would end the mobilization, they would deflect. And now there are rumors going around that Putin and some reports that Putin is going to call up quietly. And I don't know how you can do this quietly, but another 200,000 Russians. And how are the Russian people reacting to this? Not that they have much of a choice, but I'd like to know that. Everybody has a choice, whether it's a good choice or not is a different question. I think we saw a lot of people voted with their feet and left the country. Uh, You know, it's hard to tell what people think in a brutal authoritarian regime that has gotten even more brutal over the last year. I mean, the stories coming out of Russia these days are totally insane. You have teachers reporting on their, you know, middle school students to the police and vice versa. You have college students ratting each other out to police and being arrested. Like the police are responding and saying, okay, we're, you know, we're going to arrest this fifth grader. We're going to arrest the sixth grade teacher. We're going to arrest this college student. This is sort of a, a Kafka mm-hmm. <laughs> totalitarian state, even worse than it was before this war. Oh, much, much worse because now any kind of dissent has been really, truly criminalized because You can't criticize the armed forces. You can't call the special military operation a war. Anything that diverges from the official line of the military or the Kremlin is considered disinformation and therefore criminal. And people are going to jail. We know hundreds of people have been arrested and now dozens have been 
given, you know, lengthy, lengthy prison sentences. And these aren't prisons that they're going to. They're going to penal colonies that were once gulags. So it's dangerous for people to tell us how they think. But from what we understand and from the little bit of reporting that's coming out of Russia, um, I would really recommend everybody listen to this amazing episode of The Daily, the New York, New York Times' Daily podcast uh, that came out shortly before the new year. It was done. It was Valerie Hopkins, who has been in and out of Moscow, and Sabrina Tabernese, who is a former Russia correspondent for the New York Times. And Valerie Hopkins went and stood outside a military recruitment post and was talking to the men going in and to their, you know, wives and mothers and girlfriends. And much of what she heard, and and again, these are the people who showed up, right? These aren't the people who fled. These aren't the people who hid in their apartments so that they wouldn't be handed a draft notice. Uh, What Valerie heard was that these people were completely resigned to their fate. They felt that they were little people, that things were being decided for them up high in the Kremlin, and that they had no control over their own fate. And um, it sucked, but that's just how it is. And that's how it always was in Russia. And that's how it was always going to be in Russia. And that fighting against it was absolutely pointless. And all you could do was just kind of grit your teeth and bear it and hope you survive. So that sounds very Russian. Well, yeah, because it is because they're that they're in Russia and, (laughs) (laughs) and they're Russian and, you know, living through Russian history yet again. Okay, uh, we, we have to we have to break for a commercial, and uh, here it is. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Now, of course, we know that, or we're told that uh, Russia withdrew from or the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan when that was going badly. This is going much worse (laughs) than Afghanistan went. It's just that Putin has doubled down and doubled down and doubled down and doubled down, and he's not going to stop. Well, there there are major differences. Russia or the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan after 10 years. And in the 10 years between when the war was started and when it was ended, massive political changes took place inside the Soviet Union. The biggest change was the election of Mikhail Gorbachev as the 
General Secretary of the Soviet Union in 1985, who in turn introduced massive political and economic and social changes in the country, wherein he loosened up all kinds of restrictions on what was allowed to be said in the media, how the political system worked. And by 1989, it was a totally different country. It was a much freer country. Dissent was possible, um, both outside the government and inside the government. And he was just a totally different leader. Unfortunately, that decision and Gorbachev's style of leadership also led to the moment when a young Vladimir Putin was in Dresden watching crowds threaten to take the KGB outpost that uh, he was stationed in. And he had to bluff and bullshit his way out of that situation to get the crowds to retreat while he and his staff were burning sensitive papers inside. And, you know, in the very famous story, he calls Moscow trying to get instructions for what to do. And he's told Moscow is silent. And this resonated with him, you know, completely broke him. He couldn't understand how this massive, powerful empire had just completely fallen apart and lost its power. And he kind of resolved in that moment that he never wanted to see that happen again. So in his mind, leaders like Gorbachev, leaders like Khrushchev, whom he constantly blames for handing Crimea to the Ukrainian Socialist Republic, these two leaders to him are the worst. They represent the worst kind of leadership possible. They are weak, liberal men who couldn't hold the country together that because in his mind, Russia can only be ruled by an iron fist the way Stalin did it. And uh, whenever you let bring in any kind of liberalism to Russia, in his mind, everything goes to shit. I think the decision to withdraw from Af Afghanistan is a kind of, in his mind, a, and that was also the year that he faced down those protesters in Dresden in 1989. So I think in his mind, it's like, that's what happens when you admit you're losing a war and when you withdraw, like you never show weakness. If you show weakness, it's over. They will eat you alive. So he's restored a totalitarian state. And now the Russian people are just uh, resigned. A great majority of the Russian people are resigned to this and including going into a maw where they have very good chance of not coming back. Well, we don't know, really. That's that's the thing is we don't know what the majority of the Russian people think. There, it's it's very hard to measure public opinion in a totalitarian state where telling your opinion to a stranger can put your life in danger, literally. So why would you share your honest opinion? So so I mean something that scholars of well not scholars I think actually activists democratic activists from Russia will tell you about it's one of their favorite things to cite they'll say that Romania's communist dictator Ceausescu had a 99% approval rating the day before Romanian crowds swept him from power and executed him so we don't know Okay, but you're you're a uh, Russian, uh, Russian-born, and an expert on Russia, and uh, that's not going to happen to Putin, or is it? I mean, we're not. We you have knows? no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I okay. I know you know. Uh, let's <laughs> talk about the tanks. Sure. Uh, okay. Let's let's talk about uh, love a good tank. 
I, I hear like it's going to take a, a year for the Abrams tanks to get there and be operational. That can't be right. I mean, I, I, I heard General McCaffrey say that's not right. That can't be. I mean, we have Abrams tanks in Europe already, so they can literally physically get there. And it can't take a year to train someone, can it? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an expert in in uh, in tanks. tanks and how long <laughs> it's going to take them to get there. Um, apparently, what I do know is they have to be modified. Uh, they can't be exported with this uranium cover that they have. Uh, it's apparently this uranium mesh. It's like a degraded uranium. Ukrainians have to be trained. The logistic chains have to be set up, et cetera, et cetera. But they, it is going to take them longer to get there, from what I understand, than the leopard tanks. And that the, it's the leopard tanks that are going to make the bigger difference. In that, and that, that's why the thinking goes. That's why the Biden administration released the Abrams tanks. Which is to get the leopards there. Correct. To get to to kind of kick the Germans in the butt and, to, and you know, take away their one excuse for not or their official excuse for not providing the leopard tanks and from holding back other U- European allies from giving their leopard tanks because they can't they weren't authorized to give their leopard tanks to the Ukrainians without German permission. And the Ukrainians absolutely need this considering the new configurations that the Russians are, are making in terms of trenches and in combating what the Ukrainian military had. Is that correct? Yes, but they also need all kinds of other things. And there's an argument to be made that, you know, they needed the tanks, not even yesterday, but they needed it like a couple months ago. And that it always takes the West a little too long to get Ukraine the weapons that they need that we move and we budge on these things that we said, no, no, we're not going to send you Abrams tanks. No, we're not going to send you Abrams tanks. Then something like the missile attack, the cruise missile attack on the building, the residential building in Dnipro happens. And it's absolutely horrific. And the world is shaken by it. And then everyone's like, all right, fine, you can have the fucking tanks. But by then, a lot of Ukrainians are dead, or a lot more Ukrainians are dead. A lot more Ukrainian infrastructure is ruined, and the situation on the battlefield has changed again. And then, you know, we amp up our military assistance, and the Russians change their approach. And and then that means we need to do something else. And and this kind of incremental drip, drip of military assistance where we, okay, no attackums. Okay, well, maybe we'll think about attackums or no jets, no jets, no jets. Okay, well, maybe we'll start thinking about jets. Mm -hmm. It's like, Maybe if we had done this kind of all at once, I think right at the beginning, I think there were some valid concerns. And I think some Ukrainian listeners might crucify me for saying this. But at the very beginning, there were real concerns that the Ukrainian army would be completely overrun by Russia. And basically, we would just be giving all this stuff to the Russian military. But once it was clear that the Ukrainians could fight and were fighting well, then, you know, this shouldn't be like, so there's a r- Russian expression, which is, I guess, the, the equivalent of the Seinfeld joke, you know, one of the Band-Aid joke, you know, one move right off. This is, in, in Russian, you say, you know, don't cut off a cat's tail piece by piece. And I think that's kind that's of what the really West is doing. Well, our, our versions are always darker. Anyway, but I feel like there, there's been this, you know, cutting off the, 
cat's tail bit by bit aspect to this that has also made the war drag on longer and has contributed to the death of tens of thousands of Ukrainians, unfortunately. Okay, so the, these tanks and uh, also uh, our Patriot um, anti-ballistic uh, missiles are, are not there yet. They're not there yet. Yeah, I think they're still uh, getting trained on them. I think that's the other thing is like when we announce that we're giving it to the Ukrainians, there's still it's not like they appear in, in Ukraine that second. They have to be found. They have to be taken there or they have to be taken to Europe where they can be trained, although the uh, Ukrainians will be training on the Patriots in Oklahoma. I think one of the reasons, for example, that the Abrams tanks won't be getting to Ukraine for a while is that they're not coming out of U.S. stockpiles like some other weapons have. They're getting to Ukraine through a procurement, a separate procurement program. Um, so that takes a little longer too. And then on top of that, they have to be trained. Uh, Ukrainians have to be trained. The logistics networks have to be set up, et cetera. So when the announcement is made, that's just the beginning of the process. Any good news? Is there any, any good news that you might share with God, us? God, Americans always want good news. I love it. Um, well, I'm an yes, American. I mean, I think, I think this war, I think the good news is that this war is still winnable for Ukraine. And then the other good news is that Ukraine's backers and allies in the West recognize that. They recognize that this war is winnable. They believe that this war is winnable. And they're still willing to help Ukraine do that. We can disagree on the speed, but there is still an understanding, like there is now an understanding that Ukraine can really win this war. And that's, that's good. I mean, there's really no choice here. Of course, if- there's a choice. Talk to Mearsheimer. Talk to, you know, the so-called realists or the Republic, uh, like the far, far right MAGA Republicans. There are lots of people sure. who think there's a choice. Yeah. And their choice would be to, uh, you know, not fund this at all mm-hmm. and, and to allow the Russians to run over Ukraine. Totally. Okay, and when the where the Russians stop? Well, I don't agree with this, but I don't. Um, well, I think they would probably also take Moldova, but at this point, I don't know how much they would be able to do. I don't think they would be able to overrun Ukraine anymore because one of the most amazing statistics to come out of this is that the U.S. has used maybe five percent of its military budget and and we don't have one troop on the ground so right. we're not paying any price not that a single way. american killed so we've used maybe five percent of our military budget so five percent of 13 percent of our federal budget to degrade by 50 percent the second army in the world which is you know not just like a competitor but our declared en- enemy Right? This is a actually a good deal for It's a really good deal. Yeah. And that is something that I think and also it's a good advertisement for our weapons if you're in a you know Which are a, mostly honestly mostly made in the deepest reddest most deepest red states in America and create some, you know, these contracts these this ramping up of productions of javelins which are made in Troy, Alabama. Or Patriots, which are made, I believe, in Arizona. These are high-paying, high-skilled manufacturing jobs, which allegedly everybody wants to bring back to the U.S. It's just more high-skilled manufacturing jobs in the U.S. 
I mean, that isn't usually a case that I, I would make. This is good for our weapons industry. But, but you just made it. I heard it. I know. And it happens to be true. <laughs> so, yeah. but, so for these right wingers who, I, I mean, they're, they're basically American firsters. So they just don't want us to be involved anywhere, I guess. Is that well, right? Well, it's, I think it's not just that. I think they don't want us to be involved anywhere, although they would love to fight China because they don't like China. But I think at the root of that is that I think there's quite a bit of sympathy for Russia because Russia's white and they believe Putin's lies about the fact that Russia's a white Christian conservative country and that the war in Ukraine is about fighting transgender rights and you know because Putin in a lot of his speeches including you know his announcement to go to war in Ukraine drags in these American culture war issues trying very smartly to kind of get part of the American public on board and trying to insert both himself and the his war in Ukraine into the American right and Ameri- the, the American culture wars. So I think there's like a latent and, and in some ways not so latent if you listen to Tucker Carlson, who still happens to be the most, has the most popular show on American TV. Um, I think there's a sympathy for Russia. So it's not just that they don't want America to be involved anywhere. It's that they don't understand why Russia is the enemy. They think Uh, we should be allied with Russia. Tucker, actually, I I think the day before uh, the invasion, said to his audience, Democrats say we should hate Putin, but why? Yeah, I think he said it after the invasion, too. My question, if if Trump had won the election, say, would we be helping Ukraine here or would we? Well, this is... uh, Magical thinking, because Trump didn't win, right? Well, it depends who you ask. Well, let's say you ask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, he didn't win. He didn't win. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's some who say that Putin wouldn't have invaded. I think the timing kind of depended on American politics. I think he miscalculated what he thought was happening. I think January 6th was definitely one reason he went for it. I think the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan was one reason he went for it because he thought America was too weak, too distracted, too riven by factionalism and, you know, chasing and biting its own tail to stop him, let alone rally its allies in in Europe. And 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 uh, Biden uh, surprised him, mm-hmm. and maybe a lot of uh, people by putting this coalition together. Yeah, and and I'm surprised that Putin didn't realize this. But you know, for those of us who've been following this forever, you know, this was Biden's portfolio when he was vice president, and he was very much a hawk on this when he was vice pre- Obama's vice president. He advocated for a much tougher line. He advocated for Ukraine getting weapons. In 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine the first time, he was overruled by Obama, obviously. So I'm surprised that Putin didn't Misread remember this. that or thought it, was, thought it wouldn't actually happen. Right now, you're, you're, you're saying that it, it's a sort of a, not a stasis at, the, at this moment, it's a stasis, but that 
um, th- this is all still very much in question which way this is going. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from what I've heard, people inside the U.S. government are saying probably another two years. But who knows? They've been wrong before. They've also been right before. I don't know. Two years. And um, how many have we seen? Do, do we have any estimate of how many Ukrainians have died? And do we have any estimate of how many Russians have died? I haven't seen the updated figures, but it um, if in September it was about 100,000 each, um, both killed in action and wounded, from both um, sides. For both sides. And that's not counting Each civilians. Side. And that was, you know, September. So I imagine it is well, well north of that now. I mean, that that's a stunning number because that was only six months into the war. And we're almost we're on the on the we're anniversary. Almost a year and so like it could easily be double now. I don't know. It's it's very I mean, most military experts will tell you that it's actually very, very hard to count casualties especially as a war is going on. But I think it's safe to say hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost. Definitely on the Ukrainian side. And I don't know, wars in this part of the world uh, tend to rack up really high body counts really fast. So if we're talking about two more years, we're talking Mm -hmm. about unbelievable carnage. Maybe millions, yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. I mean... Look, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the number, by the time we hit the one-year marker, if the number, including civilians and soldiers on both sides, were inching toward the half-million mark. Um, how badly is the infrastructure, the Ukrainian infrastructure, been destroyed? I mean, it is a very, very big country. But we were seeing these deliberate attacks, obviously, on the utilities, on energy facilities. How quickly are they repaired? Let's say after this is all over, Ukraine will have to be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. What is that going to look like? I think it's been damaged massively. I mean, whole cities and towns have been completely wiped off the map from cities like Mariupol, on the coast early on in the war to little towns like Bakhmut and Solidar are gone. The Bakhmut is where the battle currently is yeah. in the Donbass region, right? That's right. Again, in November, Ukrainian authorities were saying that about half of the country's electric infrastructure had been taken out of commission, damaged. Now, when, when these Ukrainians this winter are without heat and without electricity and without water. How long does it take for them to get that electricity up and the heat up and the water up? I don't know. I mean, it's we've heard of, of repair people getting killed while fixing these systems. It's been a milder winter than, than um, people feared, but still, it's quite cold. Yeah. People live in these big uh, Soviet era and post-Soviet era, you know, buildings with 20, 30 floors and they're carrying water up and down the, the stairs. If you think about old people living way up there, it's not a coincidence. And I think one of the reasons 
that what we don't talk about is it's not just the human suffering. It's not that the which is horrible. It's and it's not just that the Rus- the Russians are trying to get the Ukrainian population to submit because they won't. Like I, I think it's just making them matter and more resolved to never surrender to the people who have brought them this much misery. Well, that's what Zelensky said in Washington, which is basically that they want revenge. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's what I've been hearing. But I think the other... That's that's what he said. (laughs) That's what he said in the No, I mean, I've been hearing from people in Ukraine. But I think the other thing that, that we talk about less is that uh, and this is why Ukraine has been pleading for air defenses and why the U.S. is sending patriots and might send them fighter jets, is that when Russians are pummeling their cities with these missiles, the Ukrainian military has to defend them. And they only have so many you know, air defense shells, so, many, so, much, so much air defense capabilities, right? And eventually, they have to start choosing between protecting their civilians in the cities, their electric power plants, their water plants, their their sewage processing plants, and their troops in the field. And if you degrade that enough, the Russian military is clearly hoping to finally get air dominance and to be able to like come in with the planes and the bombs and do what they did in Syria, which is even worse than this. So I think that's also what the Russians are angling for. I think that's that's also something to keep in mind. And it's why the Ukrainians are pleading for more and better air defense systems. And it's not just to stop this, but it's to prevent the Russians from achieving total dominance of the skies in, in Ukraine, which is also pretty amazing if you think about it. The Ukrainians really don't have much of an air force. And almost a year into the war, Russia, again, which boasted that it had the second military in the world, still has not been able to achieve air dominance. Well, how much of our sanctions been working against them? And, and how, I mean, a part of what we've, as you said, part of the advantage of, to us in this is degrading the second largest military in the world. Are they second to us or is, there, is China bigger than Russia? Well, they, we thought they were. Uh, they are not nearly as good. I think everybody overestimated their capabilities. Well, the, 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 uh, the performance of the Russian military. No, has- both, the per- both the performance and the, and the capabilities and the, and the machinery and everything, their logistics, everything. And, and that was at the beginning of the war. And now they are degraded by 50%. So they're definitely not the second largest, second best military in the world. Well, I meant at the, at the beginning of this. And also the sanctions are such that they can't build back, right? Uh, it's harder to build back. But so far we've seen China filling in the gaps. Uh, they're going to, the, the Russians are going to Iran and North Korea to fill in the gaps. They're still building stuff. The thing, it's not that they can't. I mean, again, look at North Korea and Iran. They're still able to build missiles and North Korea was able to, you know, develop nuclear weapons while under absolutely crushing sanctions. 
far worse than what Russia's under. So it can be done. It's harder. It makes it harder, makes it slower, it makes it less efficient, more corrupt, if that's possible in Russia. But um, again, it slows it down, but I don't think it's impossible. Obviously, the corruption in Russia is one of the reasons that the military just (laughs) did not perform uh, Mm -hmm. anywhere near what people expected from, you know, this great masculine army that Ted Cruz was so excited about. Yeah, well, Russian men are rarely what they they think they are, so. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, But I mean, the... We thought we were fighting this very sophisticated military that had, you know, this unbelievably well-funded military that it it turned out that because of a corruption just doesn't have the capabilities we thought they had. Is that fair to say? Yes. I would say that it is, uh, when it comes to Russia, kind of a tale as old as time, that it's always... Uh, I just, I remember telling anybody who would listen back in 2017 when everybody was losing their mind about Russia allegedly electing Donald Trump. Everybody kept, who had never been to Russia, didn't know Russian, didn't know the culture, the society, any of that. And they kept talking about this country that was also called Russia, that was extremely capable and detail-oriented and able to put together very detailed, highly technical plans and execute them. And all of us who had spent time in Russia, who knew the place, were like, but where is that country? Because it has the same borders as Russia. It's also called Russia. People also speak Russian in your country. But like, we don't know that country. They can't do anything right. Well, they they did... They did interfere in our election. They did. <laughs> they did. They did. It's not that they didn't. They just didn't like their and it's it's not that they didn't invade Ukraine. They did invade Ukraine. I feel like it's a kind of it's an analog. Like they, they definitely did. And they did do a lot of damage. But they're just not nearly as good as we think they are. We think they're like these it's like because they're our adversary, we need them to be twelve feet tall and these supervillains. But their, you know, their villainy is always mitigated by their sheer incompetence. But I think that they're more competent at some things than others. That's, I think that's fair to say. And I think one of the things they're they competent in incompetence and they're competent at corruption. But they were also competent in the way they interfered with their election, which was by spreading disinformation by targeting people on Facebook, by taking that Cambridge Analytica uh, data and targeting people, going on and looking at Black Lives Matter, sending them, uh, you know, Hillary calling black teenagers super predators and tamping down the vote in Milwaukee and in Detroit and in Philadelphia, three states that Trump barely won. Sure, but again, but they didn't create... Uh, 30, 40 years of Republican disinformation on on the Clintons. They didn't create a racist backlash to the first black president. They didn't create a lot of the, kind of the groundwork that made all this possible. And again, they, they also they did a lot it. of damage in Ukraine. They, you know, they're destroying the country. But in, in so doing, we're seeing a lot of their incompetence. Okay, Julia. Um, so... Basically, 
what we got is a long slog ahead of us is what you're saying. Yes. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, look again, I worry that, um, although I think I'm still optimistic for Ukraine, but I am worried that Russia or Putin specifically thinks looking at Syria, looking at world war two, that time is on his side and that the world will eventually turn away or that they throw enough bodies at the meat grinder and that they eventually win this thing just with time and bodies. So I think that's also what can prolong this thing forever and can threaten to um, throw it to the Russians. And to what extent does this become an issue in the next election and Americans are tired? I don't know. They're still far away. I mean, as you know, this it's um, like two years is it's like two centuries in American politics. Who knows where things stand in a year or two in Ukraine? Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.